Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we heard from Stuart Russell, Professor of Computer Science at the University of California, Berkeley, on how humans are beginning to get to grips with the potentially existential threat posed by artificial intelligence. This week, we hear the views of two tech investors on what society can do to adapt to the changes in employment the same technology is likely to bring about. AI is going to be a moving target for the next couple of decades, or for maybe forever. And the educational system, as well as the job market, isn't designed for every year being slightly different. And so the institutional design of both the education and the job creation is, that's actually going to be much harder than figuring out the AI. By and large, I think um, the bar that a human needs to become really deep and not be challenged by machines in many fields will be very high. And I don't expect many of the current people in those uh, jobs can easily be retrained. So I think we need to figure out two big issues. One is what to do with a massive number of people displaced in the next 15 to 20 years. Secondly, uh, I agree with Joey on the education. We really need to uh, teach our children and their children what areas to get into that are not easily replaced, and also not just think about the fancy jobs, right? Become a super doctor, program the robots. Not everyone's going to be able to do that. The first voice you heard was Joey Ito, a Japanese computer scientist who is a vocal advocate of the sharing economy. And the second was Kaifu Lee, founding president of Google China. They spoke to Tim Bradshaw at this year's World Economic Forum in Davos. So it's my first year in Davos, but it feels as though AI has been a big topic of discussion here for a few years. I wonder if this time around there's maybe a slight difference in the tone of the debate, that people are being slightly more cognizant of the ethical and political questions around AI rather than just the huge productivity and efficiency that might have come from it. Is that right, Jerry? I think so. I think the end of last year and this year is really, I think, the time when the non-computer scientists are starting to formulate an opinion rather than just a question. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think there's an acceptance that this time AI is here. It is for real. I think AlphaGo Master created the um, undoubtable fact that AI vertical domains are going to uh, create a lot of solutions that will outdo today's products as well as people. And so is it a change in the technology or is it a change in the political environment? I think it's technology, is accepting the technology. Right. There is, of course, a change in political environment, but I don't think that has any direct bearing on the AI view. Okay. IBM and Microsoft have been arguing this week that the threat to jobs has perhaps been overstated because AI is just augmenting human intelligence rather than replacing it. Are they right? And if they are right, how long for? Well, I think everything depends on the time scale that you think and the sort of unit of size. So at a very macro scale, I think it's sort of undeniable that historically new technologies have always caused fear of the loss of jobs, but in some way have created new jobs. And we can imagine lots of new jobs that are actually quite exciting. You know, nurses 
going to a community college, but having an AI do all of the hard work of what a medical school would be and sort of making those sorts of very expensive um, fancy degrees not necessary for many of the professions. So that's a, kind of a bright side. Mm -hmm. um, there are also different types of jobs that might not be as happy where you're sort of working for a machine. But obviously there'll be job displacements. And so there's a lot of question. And I think that obviously it's in the interest of the companies that are creating AI to dispel some of the fears. But I do think that some of the fears are not well informed. So I think there's two layers. I think there's one layer, which is to try to dispel the not so informed, just emotional response, which is irrational. But then to go into the rational part, because I think we have to change the educational system, we have to change the way in which licenses and accreditation works, because that's based on how much you know, not how much the machine that's assisting you knows. And the other thing is AI is going to be a moving target for the next couple of decades, or for maybe forever. And the educational system, as well as the job market, isn't designed for every year being slightly different. And so the institutional design of both the education and the job creation is, that's actually going to be much harder than figuring out the AI. Yeah, I generally agree, but I would take a little bit more of a pessimistic view. I think this time around, the changes are coming more rapidly than the Industrial Revolution because jobs are going to be displaced more rapidly as soon as an AI solution creates a good ROI. Uh, as an example, face recognition, something a lot of people work on in China, and uh, you know we can recognize uh, 200,000, 300,000 faces simultaneously, and that's not even close to what humans can do and people who rely on that will be simultaneously displaced. Now we can choose to pick examples where the symbiotic human-machine relationship makes it better than either. I think medical is a great example of that. But even within medicine, there are parts of medical that will be displaced sooner. For example, the ones that rely on image recognition, that's the radiologist and so on, and there will be others that will be later. But by and large, I think um, the bar that a human needs to become really deep and not be challenged by machines in many fields will be very high. And I don't expect many of the current people in those uh, jobs can easily be retrained. So I think we need to figure out two big issues. One is what to do with a massive number of people displaced in the next 15 to 20 years. Secondly, uh, I agree with Joey on the education. We really need to uh, teach our children and their children what areas to get into that are not easily replaced. And also not just think about the fancy jobs, right? Become a super doctor, program the robots. Not everyone's going to be able to do that. I think the service is probably a direction we need to uh, push and, and get more people to human-human interaction and create that connection that robots, at least for now, cannot have and really go and increase the degree to which uh, service jobs are desired and respected in the society. And I'd, I'd like to add one point there, you know, uh, being Japanese, in Japan actually service jobs have traditionally been jobs that people are very proud of, you know, so I know people don't work in restaurants to become movie stars. They work in restaurants because they love working in restaurants. And I think that I've been trying to teach and talk to students in Japan to sort of go back to the roots of Japan before Japan was so focused on growth where my favorite tempura shop, it's run by a family. They have two rooms. And I asked them, why don't you open another store? They said, well, why should we? We love this place. We love our clients. So I think there's actually going to be sort of having to be a slightly reset of values because people think of work as the way you earn money and the money as a way you measure your success. But in fact, if you measure your success by how much you love your job, and if you love your job based on your mastery of the job, many jobs that 
that we've considered sort of you know service jobs don't seem to be great jobs. Um, I think it's a matter of how you can sort of create and, and one other thing is like jobs right now you know give you purpose, give you structure, give you meaning in life and I think if we refocus a little less on the economy of the job and a little bit more on the purpose like for instance Parenting isn't part of our GDP. It's not considered part of productivity. But parenting is extremely important for society. If we could increase the amount of time people get to spend on parenting by 2x, I would say that would make society better. And so a lot of the metrics that we've used when we were thinking of humans as sort of units of labor rather than sort of a societal value, this is where again, these conversations of non-computer scientists talking about AI is very important because mm -hmm. we have to reset more than just the algorithm. Well, one other point is that human jobs have a pyramid. You start at the entry level, then you get better. You compete, you improve, you're selected, uh, and then you become good, you become masters, you become you know, chief scientist or senior VP, and so on. But the machines are gonna replace the base layer of the pyramid. So we need to figure out what to do so that people can still have that base layer experience and get a chance to grow. And do we have to you know, make up jobs for them or hopefully there's a better solution? In terms of that sort of different type of job and providing more of a value to that job, does that kind of change the economics of those professions? Do we see a world where running a tempura store is somehow more lucrative than being an office worker? And if so, how do the economics of that work? Who pays for that? So I think the big question is how economics in general will work, right? Because if the theory that AI will increase productivity and that somehow that abundance will be shared, if, and that's a big if, if that's possible, then all of those starving artists should stop starving. And all of the institutions where you have to take a pay cut in order to be a professor should stop. And if we can just start funding all those places where you have to give up economics to do a job out of passion, there are so many jobs where you get underpaid and overworked just because it's a great job. If we could just give them a boost, I think that there's a lot of opportunity. And you look at like Athens, they did have slaves, but you had people in Athens whose work was civics and philosophy, right? You imagine a world like that. But the big if is whether the resources will be distributed fairly, and universal basic income and others have talked about it. But I think the main point about those programs that's exciting is not that you won't have to work anymore. It's that work that's currently not financially sustainable will suddenly become sustainable and then our lives will become richer because you'll have musicians able to do what they want to do and you'll have restaurant owners who can proudly focus on their work instead of worrying about money. But if you look at the dynamics of, take musicians, it's become a harder place to make money in a digital economy at the moment. Who is going to pay for that? extra wage? Is it the government? Is it a sort of stipend well, from well, tech companies? No but, the, no, but music is on the rise. So what happened was when the music industry wasn't able to get into and figure itself out into the digital, it dropped. But right now, with compulsory licensing, things like the streaming, music revenues are up. It just took a little while to adapt. That You don't have the superstars, because when you had MTV, you had monopolies. So since, let's say, 2000, the number of super hits have declined. But overall, the market for musicians should be increasing. I think, um, if not music, then there are some other area in which your question is valid, right? Mm -hmm. Who are going to pay for the poets? Who are going to pay for the columnists and journalists. And I think going back to the roots, well, you know, the Medici family paid for it because they made a lot of money out of the economy. And I think the AI companies are going to make a lot of money and either they will fund this or they will be taxed and then the government can fund this. 
I think this is actually a good thing if we get to that point, because I would argue it's a return to normalcy, that people are supposed to be balanced in between the humanities and the sciences, between the engineering and the theory. And we've been pushed too far to go after the engineering, lawyer, doctor, accountant jobs in the last century. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And now that a lot of those jobs can be done by machines, well, we can do what we love and what we do well. So to talk about those profits for a moment, do you feel like AI, because of the requirements for large amounts of data and the skills, you know, specialist expertise in developing the algorithms, will it be an area where a large portion of the profits concentrate in a handful of big tech companies or because individual companies all have their own data sets, it will be more evenly distributed across the economy. I think the system will continue to encourage the large companies not to share because they don't have to. They can monopolize the data, monopolize the talent, pay them ridiculous amount of money, and use that to create more money, making it difficult for smaller companies to get in the game. So I think we need to push for openness. So in my company, Innovation Ventures, we're actually starting uh, brand new efforts to train young engineers to get in the door about AI. We're going to collect some data sets and make that shareable. We're going to provide free compute resources. And at least that within China, I feel like um, uh, the same thing is happening. In the US, there's Google, Facebook, Microsoft. In China, there's Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. These companies, not out of any ill will, but just out of normal capitalism, will not be sharing. So we want to sort of be the catalyst to start some sharing. And Joey, you've mentioned before how far these tech companies are offering a service, a platform to other non-tech businesses. Who owns the data? Who owns the insights that are created from it? And how far are these non-digital companies really enabled by AI or just sort of pulled into the IBM, the Google, the Microsoft platforms? I think in a world that's increasingly connected, the ability for winner-takes-all to become a monopoly is well-known, right? Like the number two department store, you used to get traffic because it was kind of a pain to go to the number one department store. Now, if it's a click away, why would you go to number two? And what happens when you create monopolies is that it takes market mechanisms that used to control and cause competition and sort of eliminates that. And when you have monopolies or sort of oligopolies, you have these super players who can afford to pay millions of dollars for any PhD student who comes out with an AI thing. So I do think that that aggregation is happening. I am worried, absent some smart way to figure out how to dampen the power of some of these monopolies, whether we can just depend on the market. You know? And so I'm interested in how your fund and your work will go after these things, because I think it's an important point. For instance, this is slightly tangent, but it's related. You know, we did a study of the trolley problem, self-driving cars, and which basically asks people a question. If a car is about to hit a whole bunch of people, should it swerve and sacrifice a passenger? So the majority of the people said, of course it should sacrifice a passenger 
to save all these lives and everybody else should buy that car, but I will not buy that car, right? So, so it means that if you leave it just to the market, people will tend to be selfish. And as you said, you know, good old-fashioned capitalism doesn't incentivize these people to share. So the question is, what's the lever? Because I don't think regulation by traditional governments is actually nuanced enough to get this right. I think there are certain players. Sometimes you can get it in their best interest, but usually, like the internet, I think we just got lucky. I think the internet was open and generative because people weren't paying attention and it was a bunch of people who didn't really care about capitalism, who were just fiddling around with things. Like if you think about the early days of the internet, why would they carry packets from other people just to be friendly neighbors? Well, that's because they were all academics, you know. And so the problem right now in AI and Bitcoin and all these other fields is it's not a bunch of academics fiddling around for a decade or two. It's actually real money coming in. And so we don't have this sort of commons-based open approach leading up to it. So I have a little bit of fear of whether this is going to work out well. So we're taking the uh, extreme approach. We fight greed with greed. So Google can say, we offer a million dollars to an engineer, and we'll say, well, come and start a company, and you'll make a hundred million dollars. Mm -hmm. And then we provide them with a platform that is open. We don't know if this will work, but mm -hmm. uh, I figure it's, it's yeah. worth a try. We're a venture capitalist, mm -hmm. so I think the natural aligned interests are mm -hmm. set up, mm -hmm. so we're giving it a try. We've talked a little bit about the outcomes of AI as it becomes more pervasive. What about the inputs, and who is creating these algorithms, and how we know when they're being used. IBM has talked about these principles for the cognitive era where they have pledged transparency of what data was used to train an algorithm, what method was used to train an algorithm, and somehow telling people when AI is in use. I don't know if that's kind of like a sort of red flash at the top of your screen or, or what that is. But a little ad that shows. Yeah, yeah. A little, little powered by. Powered by. Yeah. But so do you think that will work? Is, is that sort of self-policing of you know how AI is created is that enough to prevent bias from creeping in from abuse happening in these very complex black boxes I think it's very good PR uh, the message sounds good to the uh, non-technical person but it's easier said than done but I do worry about the following dilemma which is there will be companies that choose to self-discipline there will be countries that choose to create laws to limit the wrong things from happening but there will be companies and countries that don't. So by choosing to be self-disciplining, whether you're a company or a country, you are potentially going to actually fall behind because there will be others who are not doing that. So this becomes a meta question of how do we not result in a world where the worst behaving people end up being the most aggressive and most successful, taking the Tesla versus Google view to autonomous vehicles. Google's very conservative, very cautious about lives lost. Tesla, I think, is a lot more reckless in uh, getting algorithms out and collecting data. On the current path, I think Tesla is more likely to produce a good product. So how do we prevent this uh, moral dilemma from not delivering the right result? I totally agree with that. And I think, though, having said that, even if you're a good actor, I think that biases can creep in. And one of our students, Joy Bulamwini, she's an African-American and she realized that one of the core libraries that's used by many products doesn't recognize it's a facial recognition product to see if you're in front of the computer and you're, it doesn't recognize non-white faces so she doesn't appear you know and it's because it's kind of an obvious thing if you're not white but if you're a bunch of white engineers and you're testing on yourself you don't notice that your algorithm doesn't work and the problem with that algorithm is it's actually a library that other people use and so even these biases if you don't have diversity in the workforce so I think a lot of companies will want to collect data and understand the customer and then create a solution 
But I think the architecture, in order for it to be really valuable to society and to sort of be able to check these things, is to be more of a tool that allows, like, I love using the example of spreadsheets and accountants, you know. So when VisiCal came out, Apple started selling like crazy. They didn't even know why it was selling. It was because all these accounting firms started buying it. And they were able to pour their creativity into VisiCal way beyond what the VisiCal developers had ever imagined. And similarly, I think what we want is not some corporate salesperson collecting data and listening to somebody and then trying to build something for them. I think you want to allow the people to create the tools themselves. Now, that won't be the best business model for people who have the monopoly on the AI. So the question is, you know, maybe your startups will help to do that kind of thing. But I think it will require both uh, pulling on the side of the rest of the people, as well as some companies that decide that that's the way they're going to make their money. Is it clear where the line is between the sort of data and the outcome here? And what happens if a Google algorithm in a a commercial entity produces some sort of world-changing lucrative insight from public sector data in healthcare or something. Is that something that's kind of given back to the state because it was public data or is it something that Google owns because it wouldn't have been uncovered without its algorithm? I mean, where are the contracts being drawn up when people are throwing all of their data into these big systems? (laughs) I don't know. I think we're really in a brave new world. We've not seen this before. I think we just have to basically rely on the past precedents. So if you build a product and you have a certain degree of accountability, you have to figure out how to deal with all the changing things, like how do you insure a car? Is it the car's fault or the driver's fault? I think we have to really sit down and worry about these. I don't have the answers. And it is interesting just if you think about comparing, say, IBM with, say, Facebook and Google. IBM, you see buying large proprietary data sets, and they're slightly more of a B2B type. So it seems like they have a strategy that involves buying data sets. Google and Facebook obviously collect our data and collect public data and try to make inferences from that. Obviously now, things like email is not public data, but it's also they're not buying that data. And so I think there are fairly different approaches to how companies feel how much data is worth, the way that they interact with it. And it's not clear exactly, I think there's some arguments and conversations about whether the algorithm is more important or the data set. Obviously the answer is probably both, but different companies have different weights on where they're putting their energies, I think. I've heard universal basic income mentioned a couple of times this week, and you mentioned it earlier. If there is such a huge surplus from artificial intelligence and taxes are collected and the government is able to make everyone live happily without having to work, does that solve any of the kind of social anxieties or the, the sort of inequality that might otherwise result? And is that the kind of panacea that a lot in Silicon Valley seem to hope that it might be? I think it has to be done because there will be this massive unemployment and there needs to be some transition. But there are two more issues I can think of. One is really how do we encourage people not to just take that and sit back and do nothing? What's the encouragement for people to get retraining or to go into parenting or to learn music? How do we encourage more positive, constructive behavior? And the second thing is there is in parallel a massive amount of incredibly entertaining experiences being built in another field, uh, virtual reality which isn't yet mature today, but by the time AI starts really displacing jobs, there'll be a lot of fun. So what's going to stop all these displaced people or unhappy young people who don't think they can find a job from staying home all day and just play games in VR? Yeah, it'll either be Wayne's World or Athens. (laughs) (laughs) We're both happening in parallel. All right, well, something to look forward to. Thank you very much indeed to Kaifu and Joey for taking the time to chat. 
Thank you. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week in conversation with Frederic Mazella, who talks about BlaBlaCar, the ride-sharing company he founded, and the rise of tech entrepreneurship in France. If you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon. Fiona Simon.